Hi, I'm Elliot Katz, a longtime poet and activist, and you're listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. I'm Wendy Sheridan, and this is The Leftscape, the shape of progressive conversation. Hi, I'm Robin Renee, and welcome to episode 116. And for our featured interview this time, we have poet and peace and social justice activist Elliot Katz. Elliot contributes to this season's theme of freedom by sharing his thoughts on the four freedoms put forth by FDR in his 1941 State of the Union address. And, you know, he really makes it very much relevant to today as well. And he also reads a few of his very powerful poems, and we talk about the intersection of art and activism. So do stay tuned for Elliot Katz later in the show. And before we get to that interview, Robin and I go back to the blanket fort with the question, what freedoms do we allow ourselves or not? That is a very open-ended thing. I'm not even sure. I have some ideas. I'm not even sure where I'm going to go with that. So it's going to be interesting. We'll, we'll yeah. see. <laughs> yeah. So it's been two weeks, a week, two weeks. I can't, I can't eat, you know, time is, time is, is an illusion for me now. <laughs> it's been two weeks since we've done this show. So yes. yes. <laughs> two weeks in a day. We're recording. Oh a day my God. Yes. So a whole bunch of people died over the last two weeks right i've lost track so if you want there to were a lot right. of celebrities i do not have the list but we did lose meatloaf which people have been making a lot of comments about yeah yeah I, i'm really bummed about this one it, it it pisses me off like i'm both sad and angry yeah For, I, I i think he's was a really, really unique performer. I, I got to see him one time at uh, at Rutgers, oh. and you know, and also, and his his writer Jim Steinman, who passed away uh, in April of last year, like they oh, were. God, right? He died too. I yeah. loved, I loved him as a comp <laughs> as a composer. He was just so <laughs> over the top, like more over the top of the top, you know. <laughs> yeah, and the key changes and the. It's just so bombastically wonderful to me. Like I used to not like it, but then I I grew to really. Oh, love I it. and then I started like following the other singers that would cover his stuff too. But Meatloaf, yeah. the thing that so apparently he was super anti-lockdown, <sighs> and he was not vaccinated as far as anyone can tell. I don't know that that's been officially stated, but it it seems to be the case. And mm. you know he had posted some things about like he posted that song by Eric Clapton and Van Morrison. That was okay. their like anti-lockdown song, which was- I don't remember that. I don't know what that one it's was. Not, don't ever listen to it. because I won't. It's it why I don't me, know it. It offends me as a song. Like it's <laughs> musically bad and it, the oh, message God. is terrible. <laughs> well, I mean, if the message is terrible, it really doesn't need to be a catchy tune. Right. You know? There you go. Yeah. So, so it's a self-fulfilling. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's like he was- I guess you you can be both 
a perpetrator of this stupid, like all false information about vaccines and also a victim of it? Because how do people get these ideas? Like, you know, yeah. it's just, I just feel annoyed There's, about the whole There have thing. been a lot of the that combo of perpetrator and victim of the false information. It's sad that Meatloaf was one of those. I saw him at the Stone Pony when I yes. was married to my second husband, who was six foot four with long red hair and kind of overweight. And we were waiting for them to come on. And I swear to God, everybody at the Stone Pony was asking him if he was like related to Meatloaf. And then Meatloaf comes on and I look at my ex and I go, well, okay, I see why everyone's <laughs> asking that question. <laughs> That's funny. Wow. Oh, man. So anyway... What else happened since we've spoken? Well, that was a, uh, I knitted a dog sweater. <laughs> that's, that, that's my big thing that happened. And, and I sprained my ankle, which oh. kind of preceded knitting the dog sweater because I couldn't do anything else except sit down with my foot up for a oh, day man. or two. Right. So I said, all right, let me knit something. And I go, all right, let me try knitting a dog sweater. And it was interesting and in learning all of the different places to measure a dog and the dog is a very cooperative dog. She was really good. Uh, and she, she likes the sweater. Cause if you show it to her, she tries to stick her head in it, like tries to get into it right away. So, wow. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> and she looks very dapper. We'll post a picture. I guess, I don't know. Do you want to put it on the website or you want to save it for the newsletter to make people sign up? Let's make it a uh, a newsletter. Okay, thing. that sounds good. It'll be it'll be in the Leftscape Lookout, which we'll talk about <laughs> more in a minute. That's right. <laughs> oh man, and uh, I don't know. There's other things in my life. I had I I hung out with some friends Saturday, and we tried to have an outdoor hangout with a fire, and uh, the heater didn't work, and the <laughs> projector we were trying to watch something with, and it was like every, it was too cold for anything. Including, <laughs> including that was supposed to keep us warm. Yes, <laughs> so that was kind of an aborted mission. It was funny, <laughs> but anyway, so such is such is life. You can catch a new episode of the Leftscape every other Wednesday, except for this week, which is Thursday, <laughs> and subscribe to our show on our website leftscape.com or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you sign up for automatic downloads so you never miss a show. And we can see our numbers that we have been reaching more people lately. And I'm really excited about it. I know Robin is too. So please, let's keep it going. Share the podcast with your friends. Yes, absolutely. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Leftscape. And when you're over on our website to check out our show notes, sign up for the monthly-ish newsletter, The Leftscape Lookout. Wendy was correct. We were about to mention it. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to love us a little bit more, you can leave us a review. <laughs> <laughs> and we could really use some Google reviews. So if you dig the show, let folks know. Google us and look for the link to leave us a stellar review. And we thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And there's something else you could do. You can join us over on Patreon for extra content. Your becoming a patron helps us keep making this show better. Join us at any level. You can start out at front row seats tier for just a dollar a month. 
and you can have the opportunity to attend patron-only hangouts and chats, and you'll have access to our special segment, We Should Be Recording This, and more. For this month, our We Should Be Recording This Patreon exclusive, we take a deep dive into this season's theme of freedom, where we share much more than what you get on the show. Yes. Very, very cool. And we actually have a rewind this time. We don't have them often, but sometimes we want to go back and talk about something that happened in the last show or just, you know, give us give a follow-up or a correction or something like that. And this time, um, in our question at the end of the show, we answered a question by Anne Sabah. And she listened to our response, at, which the question was, <laughs> who's your favorite golden girl? And, and we showed that we clearly neither of us really were golden girls experts. <laughs> We were trying to figure out how many of them there were and who played what and all this. So she just wrote to clarify that Estelle Getty was the mother of B. Arthur in Golden Girls. And she was done up in old, quote unquote old makeup. So that's the fourth person that we weren't sure how that fit. <laughs> yeah. After we recorded that show, I actually watched the, the pilot of the Golden Girls just to see if I wanted to watch it and I didn't, even though, I mean, it, it's kind of dated and, and it's weird because I know when it came out, I was too young to be interested in a bunch of old ladies. And, and now it's like, oh shit, they're all younger than I am now. <laughs> so, oh no. <laughs> so that was kind of just a weird thing. Cause I looking at older B. Arthur and I going, Oh God, she's got to be in her fifties cause she's still working. And, and, you know, and I'm not anymore. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Perspective. Oh, well, indeed. <laughs> so I guess now it's time for three random facts and the news. And I have the first random fact. Uh, 99% of people cannot lick their elbows. Um, and, and then I added this extra bit, a hundred percent of people can lick somebody else's elbow. <laughs> so I, I, I would like to see someone lick their elbow. I, if that one, that's a weird 1%. I, I am not aware of. So that'll yeah. Be, I don't I'm know that sure I would I want to Google that, that but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I'm sure at this point it's a euphem. There's gotta be a rule 34 for that one. Yeah, and I'm pretty I, sure. I, that's scary. <laughs> And speaking of sexual type things, um, <laughs> it turns out this is actually a news item. I was going to put this in news, but it's kind of fact-ish, so okay. make it a fact. And it has that, to do with animals. So. That's, that's right. <laughs> Female dolphins have a clitoris much like humans. They have active sex lives with frequent dalliances, not for reproduction. One reason may be that the prominent female dolphin clitoris provides sexual pleasure. So I, I thought that was pretty cool news. I also I also know dolphins do a lot of threesomes. The dolphins do a lot of all the they, things. They're <laughs> pretty they're pretty randy critters. And, yes. You know that you know that's not a, a species I would not mind reincarnating as because <laughs> be they cool. seem to party a lot. I feel like I, yeah, you can get high on the uh, pufferfish too. <laughs> They have fun. <laughs> anyway, what's the third fact? Anyway, the third fact and final fact is uh, it cost more to make the movie Titanic than it did to build the ship itself. At $200 million, the movie cost more than the Titanic. The cost to construct the ship in 1910 to 1912 was 1. 1.5 million pounds, 
equivalent to seven and a half million dollars at the time and about 120 to 150 million dollars in 1997 dollars, which is when the movie was made. So the movie costs more than the boat. So <laughs> I don't know what you want to make about that, but that's my random fact. Nice. So uh, now is all of the news we can handle. <laughs> Well, I have been keeping an eye on the January 6th commission who are, you know, trying to get to the bottom of what happened during the insurrection and what led up to it and who knew and all this, all this stuff. It's, (laughs) it's getting so weird. Like it surprised, it surprised me. I don't know why I'm shocked anymore about this, (laughs) but when they were discovering the, the falsified electors, electors. You know, and these documents that just like announced these false electors, and, and the fact that it was like Rudy Giuliani plant, like I don't know, the whole thing <laughs> is so bizarre. <laughs> it's so bizarre to me. But um, anyway, so the people that they've subpoenaed is Mark Meadows, former White House Chief of Staff, uh, Daniel Scavino, who was a former White House Deputy Chief of Chief of Staff for Communications, Kashyap Patel, former Department of Defense. Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani, which actually made me laugh out loud when I heard that. I don't know why. I I, I guess I have Schadenfreude about him. <laughs> <laughs> and so voluntary interviews, they've got Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan, Scott Perry, Sean Hannity, and now Ivanka Trump, which was the big news recently, that yeah. they've politely said that they would like to speak with her. So I don't know when that will turn into a subpoena because a lot of people think she'll just ignore the invitation so yeah we'll see i was kind of amazed when the supreme court allowed the records to be released from his administration for almost unanimous with what's his name thomas i think thomas was the dissenter and that could be because his wife is kind of implicated (laughs) in some of this shit Hmm. was yeah his wife was actually speaking at the rally Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm, I've been watching this and I'm waiting to see what happens. They've been finding out a lot of things and none of it is good. <laughs> but on um, what I consider to be fantastic news, on the last day of the prior New Jersey state legislative session, which was January 10th, which was the day we were, we were recording our last show, Uh, the legislature voted on and passed the Reproductive Freedom Act, which means that abortion in New Jersey will be legal regardless of what happens with the Supreme Court. One of the reasons that the governor pushed this on the legislature and that, and this has been, he, he kind of, I think this has been going through the legislature for almost two years. And I think the reason was because the New Jersey state laws were built upon the the ground framework of Roe v. Wade. And if Roe v. Wade went away, a lot of our laws would, would not have, you know, the basis for support. So, right. they, put, so they had to solidify it. So they had to solidify it on the state level, regardless of what the federal government says or does. Well, I'm glad that is good news about our laws. And I, feel I mean, it's bad for 
people who have to, if, if they have the means to travel, to have to travel. Yeah. That's, um, it's a burden. Um, and, I, and I know a lot of abortion advocates were not greatly thrilled about the way the, how the law ended up because it still leaves a hole for people who don't have, you know, insurance or financial resources to get abortions. At least it's legal. I mean, you still have to pay for it, but at least it's legal. And, and I think insurance here covers some or all of it, depending on your insurance carrier. So I guess it's like for uninsured people, they can't, they have to pay out of pocket and that, and that presents a barrier for people. Right. So right. anyway, it's enough on that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, other, in another health related type thing, um, you can now be reimbursed from your health insurance for COVID tests. And I'm looking at this article now and it says that, and I know there are some different rules depending on if it's Medicare or Medicaid your, your your regular you know um, work related health insurance all the, there's all different things so you would have to look into it but in general insurance companies and health plans are now required to cover eight free over the counter home tests per wait per month per right? covered per individual per month yes right um, so for instance a family of four all on the same plan would be able to get up to thirty two tests covered by the their health plan per month, which is that's good. Yeah, I mean that it, it's you know we've been buying them, and I now I have to see if I can dig up the receipts and if it works for stuff from before this whenever this rule came through. Right, I was we've wondering been, that too. We've I been buying some. them, yeah, and we ordered some, and and it's while it's not like a shitload of money each time, like fifteen bucks for us, for example, isn't like a burden. But if you've got to be doing it every week, it adds up. Right. And if you, every time you want to spend some time with someone, you feel like you want to check and be sure that that can, that can become a lot, you know? Yeah. And I'm still not going out a lot, but there are, you know, instances where I'd want to have an extra level of security that every feel, everyone is feeling well and is okay. And that sort of thing. Yeah. And the other thing is that there are four free tests per household from the U S government. So there's covidtest.gov. And there's usps.com slash COVID test. Either of those, you can go and order your four tests per household. Household, which that in itself is problematic because there's many households with more than four people in them. Sure. And I and I heard I heard that it's the way it's like apartment buildings are being counted as one residence or something. There was like there is a snafu happening with the with this whole rollout, which right. is apparently are it's how we it's how we do things now there's going to be stuff that's fucked up immediately right after right so i mean it's a drop in the bucket but it's a those things combined i mean it's we're getting somewhere at least that, yeah. that i'll say <laughs> but yeah an apartment building is not one residence. no i know i Please. know and it was it they was figure I, that I, one out. <laughs> I hope they figured it out so. really uh and another thing um Listener Tony Rogers sent us an article, which is really a, it's a good discussion starter. It says major media outlets can't stop describing police violence as officer-involved incidents. And basically, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, the Associated Press issued guidance that reporters should not describe instances where police shot someone with neutral language. Mm. Um, you know, if someone shot someone, they should say it as succinctly and clearly as possible. 
But apparently that has not really taken hold and you still get things like North Hollywood officer involved shooting incident in North. That's like, all right, that's also redundant. North Hollywood <laughs> officer involved shooting incident in North Hollywood. I guess it could have happened somewhere else, but you know, that was the case where I believe it was a Macy's. Someone had a gun at Macy's and this officer was called in and, and he went in, you know, ready to shoot and his fellow officers said, hold up or something like that. But he shot the suspect and also the shot pierced a wall and killed a 14 year old girl. Oh man. And, um, but you know, so there was some indication that like the people around him were saying like, you, you need to slow down and wait, but he didn't, you know, and so that's an officer involved shooting apparently. Mm. But anyway, there's a call to really be clearer in our language. And I think that really affects how we think about things, you know, so oh, yeah. over the oh. last 20 years or so, it's become officer involved depending regardless of the situation that sort of yeah takes- I, i'm wondering if the if the police department doesn't have influence over the editors because they don't want to start a riot or something i don't know they come up with bullshit reasons for why they don't want why they want neutral language and i and i have also noticed that that they that that the language that they use to describe certain crimes against women are written as you know it's in the passive voice or something like that like uh, like a woman was assaulted instead of uh, a, like the suspect assaulted a person mm. you know yeah like well, I guess something so. that happens to the woman and and then there's nobody else involved you know right right mistakes were made <laughs> 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 but yeah. So anyway, this is this is a, an article. This is in HuffPo. I will give the link, and you know, it just um, gives some ideas about how people could be clearer. And, and I think it helps me think about how I could be clearer in my own language and writings mm. too. So uh, something to think about for everyone. And <laughs> we have like some sort of slightly linked articles today. So this is another LAPD story, <laughs> and in this one. And I had to laugh at this. Uh, LAPD cops were fired for catching a Snorlax instead of stopping a robbery. <laughs> I laughed when I read that. <laughs> so apparently uh, this happened in 2017 when Pokemon Go was still really in its height, I guess you could say. And they got a call about a robbery happening and decided to ignore it because like, they had seen a Snorlax somewhere <laughs> downtown or wherever and followed that. And one of them got it. And then after that, there was a Togetic, I think, that they both caught. And they were saying, like, how the guys will be so jealous that they got these creatures. Oh, my God. And, um, you know, and afterwards, they were fired. And this came up only because uh, they're they're appealing. Oh, so okay. That's how, they're appealing? They're appealing now. Okay. <laughs> right. So that's how it came out in the news. It wasn't really a news item at the time. Oh, my God. And, uh, you know, I have to admit, <laughs> as a, a huge Pokemon Go fan, um, I talked to a couple of people who also play, and they were kind of like, but, but it's it was a, a Snorlax. Snorlax. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I would be tempted to. However, if I think I had to really stop a crime from happening. I hope I would make the better decision, but yeah, who knows? <laughs> but that was, uh, that was a weirdness. 
And so, here's uh, some of some of what the, the people outside the United States are like looking at in our news this morning. Uh, Neil Young has demanded that his music be removed from Spotify as long as Joe Rogan is on there because of uh, Rogan's popular podcasts, COVID vaccine misinformation and lies. Last month, 270 doctors, scientists, and healthcare professionals signed an open letter requesting that Spotify implement a policy for dealing with misinformation because of Rogan's concerning history of broadcasting misinformation, particularly regarding the COVID-19 pandemic in an open, uh, um, in an open letter. And, you know, I guess, you know, Young is throwing his weight of whatever that would be at this point in an open letter to his manager, which was on his website for like a day and then they took it down. Young wrote, you can have Young or Rogan, not both. So, uh, wow. I don't know how much influence he's going to have over Spotify considering that I think they paid Rogan some ridiculous amount of money to be exclusive on their platform. Yeah, he is the biggest podcast in the world. It's, huh. it's huge. I haven't, I mean, I've only heard him in passing, honestly. Um, I've but only heard of him. So <laughs> okay. But I do know that he's got like he'll talk to anyone, you know, like he sort of tries to treat everyone as equal. Like any any expert or non-expert who has something to say, he he'll talk to for hours, you know. And it's like it's sort of like the just asking questions mode. Oh. Like, I don't know. I mean, he probably has come out and said some very specific things, but he's more as far as I understand him, he's more like Oh, we're just questioning things, you know, but it will be questioning things that are just pretty settled in terms of what medicine understands now. Yeah. And that's right. right. So it causes a big problem and millions of people are hearing him, you know, every day. So that's, that's strange. And, you know, yeah, Neil Young is not <laughs> at the height of his career, but I, I like the fact that people who are his fans who maybe were not sure will get a little bit more of a positive influence on his him taking a stand. So everybody's voice matters, you know, okay. I think so. And, and that's all the news we can handle today. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by Conspiracy of the Month. Have you grown bored or complacent with the quality of conspiracy theories being shared on social media? Have you thought about floating some theories of your own but don't know where to start? Well, we have the monthly subscription box for you. Conspiracy of the Month will send you a curated box chock full of deepfake video clips, pre-written tweets, and hashtags that would make any Russian troll farm green with envy. Share with your friends, enemies, frenemies, and soon-to-be estranged family members. Sign up for your monthly subscription box by leaving a bag of cash in Locker 2016 at the Port Authority bus station in Manhattan. And now, back to our podcast. Welcome to the Blanket Fort, where we get all warm and snuggly under blankets and talk about our feelings and what is uh what we're hiding from and <laughs> and what we're trying to um i guess manifest in our in our mental health sphere 
Is that, have I encapsulated it? Yeah. And, and what we can do for self-care, what we are doing and things like that. And we were thinking about, since we really are trying to work with our theme this season, what freedoms do we allow ourselves or not? Yeah. And, and I think one of the big ones for me is taking a day off. And that's, you know, because Robin and I are both self-employed. So it's not like we get vacation days. It's not like we get sick days. We don't get any of that. It's like when we don't work, we don't get paid. And giving yourself the freedom to take a vacation or to even just take a freaking day off is huge. And something that I've learned like in the last two weeks to do a little bit. I kind of forced myself to do that over the the winter break, you know, that void of time between Christmas and New Year's when everything is kind of shut down. Historically, I think that would be the week I clean my basement, according mm. to my Facebook memories. <laughs> <laughs> and I did not do that this year, and my basement is a disaster, and I keep going down there going, God damn it, why didn't I clean the basement? <laughs> so... That week, that week is a manic week for me because <laughs> I'm trying to visit people. Like I have a party generally New Year's Eve. Other another friend of mine has a party the day after Christmas. So it's like a, it's always more manic than I wish. Really, and, and I'm, wow. I'm that that's one thing I want to give myself the freedom to not be, to not have to do as much during that week. Particularly, that's the thing <laughs> that I'm <laughs> that I'm working on, but I haven't been so successful at sometimes. Yeah, I I gave myself permission to not work like since like Friday or Saturday because I don't even remember what day it was when because I twisted my ankle and and that's kind of my body tells me like you know Wendy you need you need to take some time off because I will injure myself and then I can't do anything and and that is not really I don't think that's really sustainable. <laughs> it's not a sustainable right. life pattern. I would like it not to happen. I can I can hear that one because I definitely <laughs> I have a thing that I do allow myself once in a while and that's called nothing day. Ah, I like that. And nothing day is just a day when I, I'll just literally stay in bed. I might watch videos like the dumber videos the better. Like I'll just watch reruns <laughs> of Inspector Gadget or something. <laughs> and eat whatever I want and just be just really, really turn off everything that's of concern and just relax. And that feels good. And it is very hard for me to do, but it did actually originate in the way that you're describing. It used to be that I would just get so sick that eventually I had to do, I had to do nothing all day. And then I would think, Oh, this feels <laughs> kind of good, even though I feel like shit, you know, <laughs> but so it, it, that's how it started, but it is a thing that I, try to give myself now and again, because I know that I, you, I, you do need that. You right. need so some downtime for sure. Do you do, do you do that ad hoc or do you actually plan schedule them? Like every certain number of days you do a nothing day. Uh, it's not, I have, I scheduled one recently because I scheduled it with a partner, mm. which was nice to do, <laughs> you know? And that was sort of like, because every time we, he and I got together, we were trying to do, something complicated, you know, camping or <laughs> something that just takes a whole lot of stuff and time. And, and it was like, you know what, just come over and 
we'll do nothing together. And that's great, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so that was nice. But no, I don't really have officially scheduled nothing days for the most part. So it could be a thing to try, you know? Okay. I don't know. Sometimes I, you know, there, there are phases I go through where everything, every, not quite every second has to be scheduled, but I start scheduling like very micro schedule, like on an hourly basis or something like that. I don't know, maybe because I read a productivity book and it said schedule your days or, or something like that. And, and, and then I get like carried away with it. That's mm. what I will pick up an idea in my teeth and run with it to ridiculous extremes and, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then I abandon the whole thing. So, but I, I do like the concept of, of regular downtime especially mm. especially for the self-employed it's it's a it's a balancing act because you're thinking about the money you're not making and it and if it's if your financial situation isn't great it that anxiety kind of wipes out any <laughs> any relaxing benefit you're going to get from the day off so you know you have to kind of give yourself permission say look i'm not going to make money today and i'm going to be good i'll be okay with that and i'll make twice as much money tomorrow or something, you know, talk to yourself, <laughs> you know, cause otherwise it's like, you're not going to be relaxed. And the whole point of it is to chill. Right. That's like the whole point of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting thing too. I mean, the whole needing to think about money as much as you do as if you really are purely entrepreneurial and I know that for the long, longest time I've had a conflict with it because it's like, I don't like thinking about it because it feels, I don't know, not dirty, but just not, not the topic of interest. And because I feel like the world should be about other things more or something like that. It's partly political, partly kind of <laughs> creative social or something. And ironically, I think allowing myself to not fear that topic and to look at things, I, I wind up in better circumstances overall and I feel more stable so that it's mm. not, it's not a constant fear and issue. Right. Know? Well, I, I don't have it myself anymore because, well, two reasons. One is my husband is working full time. So he's, he's the safety net and, and I, you know, I'm collecting retirement pay. So it's, it's a lot less of a burden. I mean, mm -hmm. I do, I do need to make some money or things will be tight. I personally like to have a nice big cushion that can handle, you know, like an expensive car repair that's sudden and, and needs to happen because otherwise nobody's going anywhere, you know, that kind of shit. I like to have money for that just sitting and I have that. So I, you know, I can relax about money now, which is a new feeling for me that I really haven't had before. And I guess, I guess that, you know, the, the freedom that comes with retirement is something that I'm still trying to wrap my brain around. Mm. You know, I, I, I used to like last year I said, no, I'm not retired. And this year I'm, I'm, I'm semi-retired. So I have a toe, I have a toe in retirement. <laughs> I'm not like, I, I am not mentally there. I don't know if I will ever mentally be there, but 
I think about what that would mean and what I would be free to create if I, if money was not a factor, mm-hmm. you know, you know, what I, you know, what kind of art would I make if I'm not thinking about, is this going to be saleable or, you know, whatever. So That's I think a great way that. to be an art, you know, because yeah, to try to get to the place where you can create what's authentic first, you know, and yeah. then, and it might be saleable, but that's, you know, not the first impulse, which is right. Which is a good place to be. Yeah. I, I'm not there. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not. I want to be not, there. <laughs> right. That's a hard one. Yeah. I mean, part of it's, you know, you're figuring out what the hell is my style, you know, because my stuff's all over the place. Hmm. So I don't have a style. It's like my music. <laughs> it's like no two songs are in the same genre, you know. That's actually a huge kind of freedom, I guess. Or is it? Does it feel? Does it feel like freedom, or does it feel like? I I don't know. I guess it feels like freedom lost, to me. Lost. Okay. Yeah. It, it's it, when you get it. The when it becomes problematic is when people are talking to you about it, and you go, "Well, uh, what genre of music are you in? Do you make?" And I like, fuck if I know. <laughs> you want a folk song? I got that. You want a hard rock song? I got that. You want something metal? I got that too. I, I don't have rap, although I wrote one. I haven't recorded it. <laughs> I, have, I actually wrote a rap song. That's An- funny. Anti-corporate. Okay. It's called Men of Stone. And it's mean. Interesting. I, I would be curious about that. So. One of the lyrics is, your golden parachute is our, is our golden shower. So. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> It's not inaccurate. <laughs> it's. I think I wrote it when when there was a layoff happening at work. Oh, <laughs> I was wow. really angry. That's funny. <laughs> so I'm I'm getting stuck in terms of like what freedoms do I allow? I think. So it's so funny because I keep thinking in terms of scheduling also, and I think that I have been. To put it this way, I'm, I've been allowing myself to do the things that make me feel healthier overall and that kind of does require forcing myself to make time so it doesn't it's so it's not like it doesn't feel like allowing Mm. but it is really what it is because I could easily just work or fritter away time doing things you know and then missing out on the things that really feel important. Like for I've been exercising a lot, which I love. Not even a lot, but like consistently. Okay. And that makes I'm incredibly I just feel a hundred and ten percent better, you know. Yeah. And I love it. And so but it but it takes me going like, okay, I'm going to stop what I'm doing now because this <laughs> other thing will get done and it'll be fine. And I'm gonna do this thing that I really like and love yeah. missing, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, so, yeah. Yeah. I, I have to get to the point where I can do a fun thing before the not fun things, mm. you know, like, like if I wanted to just art, do art or something like that, and it's not for a client and it's not a commission or it's not any of that stuff. It's just for me. I have to, I say to myself, no, you got to do all this other shit first. Right. And then by the time all that's done, 
it's like time to cook dinner or time for something else and and the art time is gone and it doesn't get done and and mm. it it's like i don't get that re you know if you leave it as a reward for doing something else and then you never end up rewarding yourself it's like what's the point and right then it's not happening and the, and i started exercising at the advice of uh, my new therapist and I did, I did, I walked the dog one day and it's like the next day I sprained my ankle. So I think we need to explore why I managed to become clumsy. Something happens when I start exercising. It's either I get a, an attack of vertigo or I, I injure a body part and I can't do the exercise. Uh. This is, this is a consistent thing that has happened in my life and it's physical and I'm wondering it's now. It's physical, I mean, and you wonder, like, how does how does your how do you arrange for that to happen? Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a weird Thank thing. You. I've had things like that. There's something going on. <laughs> I'll bring it up with my therapist in the next session, and we'll yeah. see. We'll see what she says. Well, I'm glad. I know that in another <laughs> blanket fort, you talked about wanting to do therapy. So I'm glad that you were yeah. that last that. week. Yeah. Exciting. <laughs> yes, that's another freedom for freedom to have therapy. Well. I don't know. I don't have any any official thing, but I am definitely allowing myself more indulgences lately. And just mm. if I enjoy something, I try to make time for it. You know, so oh, it's good. not as much things as maybe things, but not too many things. More about experiences and just chill time, downtime. Mm. You know? Yeah, I'm gonna wrap it up by saying, give yourself the freedom to relax and to take care of yourself <laughs> yeah whatever that means I'm yes still whatever learning. that is for you I'm really happy to have Elliot Katz with us on The Leftscape today. Elliot Katz is the author of seven books of poetry, including Unlocking the Exits and Love, War, Fire, Wind. His most recent books are a readable scholarly volume entitled The Poetry and Politics of Allen Ginsberg and a free PDF volume of anti-Trump poems that were posted on his website before the 2020 election. Called Another Classic New Jersey Bard by the late great poet Allen Ginsberg. Elliot has been a longtime activist for a wide range of peace and social justice causes, including many years spent as an advocate for Central Jersey homeless individuals and families. The son of a Holocaust survivor, you can find his work at elliotcatspoetry.com, and I will definitely have that link in our show notes. So welcome to the Leftscape, Elliot. Thank you, Robin. It's great to be here with you and to be able to talk with you. Um, We've been friends for uh, too many years now for me to mention how many. Yeah, but, and it's uh, been a while a since we've talked, so this is kind of cool yeah. to reconnect. So, so it's so wonderful to talk with you again. And I should also mention that I think through the years, mostly when we were both living in New, the New Brunswick area, we did a lot of uh, shows together with poetry and music. Yes, so it's, and a lot of those were related to activist causes. So it's great to talk with you about um, politics and activism and art. Absolutely. 
Um, I was thinking maybe you want to start out with a poem to share with us. Okay, that I'm going to start out with a a, a short poem. Um, one of the one of the things we talked about uh, us talking about tonight was uh, was freedom, and I, I was going to talk about freedom in a few different ways. But one of the ways was in the context of um, of FDR's speech on four freedoms which also led to the helped lead to the universal declaration the UN universal declaration of human rights and that included a, a couple of human rights that are recognized internationally but not honored too much here in the United States so i'm going to start off with a poem that mentions a few of those this is a poem called marching barefoot and it's from 2007 Marching barefoot. By the tens of thousands, Burmese Buddhist monks are shown on blogger videos marching bravely and barefoot for democracy and a decent economic life. America's President Bush knows that children are learning, so he speaks to the UN with a cue card of mis mis mispronunciations in his cupped palm, making declarations about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that come without a shred of credibility attached. Which country will lose the race to recognize the human rights to housing and health care? These are perilous times for, per, for pedestrians walking in bare feet. Too many leaders, east, west, north, and south, have refused to sign the treaty to keep used razor blades off their city sidewalks. Wherever we take a stroll these days, we are stepping on globalized blood. And that's marching barefoot. Wow, thank you. It's, the, the idea of globalized blood actually sort of has a new meaning these days in the midst of a global pandemic, I guess. Right. Really. It's it's true. Thank you for that, first of all. And can you just enumerate the four freedoms that were in that speech? I know you mentioned a couple yeah, of them. I yeah. just want to get so, all four of them so, in my head. Yeah. So, so what I was thinking when you asked me to talk about freedoms is there are so many different ways of talking about freedom, you know, individual freedoms, social freedom, uh, the difference between, let's say, freedom and license, you know, that freedom, you know, also implies some elements of responsibility and reciprocity that, you know, freedom doesn't mean one has the freedom to do anything like harm other people, you know, but um, but what I wanted to sort of focus on, in part because it relates to many of the activist projects I've worked on, which we also talked about, talking about tonight, was in 1941, in a State of the Union speech, uh, sort of uh, following many of his New Deal programs, FDR enumerated four freedoms that were sort of an attempt of his to start talking about an extension of the New Deal programs. And the four freedoms he talked about were freedom of speech and expression, freedom of religion, and those two are, are more commonly known here in the U.S. because they're enshrined in our First Amendment. And then, and then the third and fourth were freedom from fear and freedom from want. 
I think it was actually in the speech, it was the other way around, freedom from want and freedom from fear. But freedom from want was basically, you know, freedom from homelessness, freedom from hunger, freedom from a lack of health care, and freedom from fear would be like, you know, freedom from wars, freedom from police brutality, freedom from domestic violence, freedom from gun violence. And of course, a lot of these freedoms, you know, are up for debate what exactly would constitute those. And they also would have to evolve. For instance, in 1941, when FDR was enumerating these freedoms, you know, one, one fear that not too many people had, maybe a few, you know, really advanced thinkers, one, one fear that we have now that we didn't have then was climate change. So I would say, you know, today, that would be one of the things we need to work on if we wanted to really end freedom from fears. That but those were the, really huge, yeah. But those were the... But those were those were the four: uh, speech or expression, religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Mm-hmm. Why do you think we have not done so well on two of those? You know, I mean, you could argue that we we obviously have challenges with all of them, but um, yeah, I what mean, what we, do you think? We we certainly have had challenges on you know. Uh, putting whistleblowers in jail for, uh, you know, uh, uh, for, for, you know, g- giving information to reporters, sure. um, uh, re- religious, uh, you know, religious uh, prejudice in the U.S., you know, uh, let's say against yeah. um, people of the Islamic faith after 9-11 and, you know, uh, this the synagogue violence in Pittsburgh, um, but you, you know, but the the last two, you know, um, after uh, Franklin Roosevelt gave that speech in 1941, Eleanor Roosevelt was was part of the core committee that put together the universe the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights that the U.S. is a party to. And, you know, for some reason, you know, those rights just have never taken hold. I think it's because in this country, you know, there's such an individualistic tradition, uh, you know, uh, in our uh, capitalist traditions that there hasn't been the same kind of, you know, social, you know, there hasn't been the same kind of respect for a social safety network that there is, say, in the Nordic countries like Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, for things like um, uh, preventing homelessness, where in the U.S. estimates are that there are about 600,000 homeless people on any given night, and a guarantee of health care, where we have about 30, even after Obamacare, we have about 30 million people in the U.S. estimated who don't have health insurance, which is a real tragedy during a pandemic. But, you know, even people with health insurance, you know, often, you know, especially with private health insurances, you know, they, they decline to cover certain medical needs. So that's health insurance isn't the same thing as having health care. So, you know, somehow this, you know, this country has never decided to have 
that that kind of social safety network that a few other countries have. In fact, most most developed countries have more of a social safety network than the U.S. has. Right. Um, you you, you know, made a good point earlier just about the idea that freedom, and I hadn't crystallized this in my mind in quite that way, that freedom really does imply some type of responsibility. You said freedom versus license, and that is a really good way to mm -hmm. describe that because I, I do feel that, that there's some way that we ideally it's not freedom to do whatever the hell you want <laughs> to hurt people, right. you know, um, but right. to really pay attention to those kinds of things too, that, that everybody has what they need and we can live in an expanded free society at the same time, you know? Right. Right. And, you know, for, for one good example of that, you know, the people who, you know, who believe that it's, okay that there are more guns in this country than people right and you know and who avoid thinking or talking about the danger that creates whether in schools or shopping malls or whatever you know that's a difference that they haven't really come to grips with yet but to me that that is an important distinction Absolutely. So you've done some work um, with homelessness, you said, and um, and you also your poetry is also obviously very political and, and has that activist bent. But what have you, I guess, um, tell me a little bit about the work that you've done as, as an activist, I guess, more broadly. Well, and if you want to say, go for it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, you know, I, I've worked as an activist on a pretty wide range of peace and, and social justice um, issues. Um, in, in New Brunswick, I worked with different groups. I worked with, I worked for about a dozen years with a group called Middlesex Interfaith Partners with the Homeless, where we helped to create housing, uh, housing programs for homeless individuals and families that are still ongoing, although, you, you know, the, the name of the group that runs it has changed. But but the programs Amon the Crossing, Imani Place, uh, and some of those programs are still ongoing. And we also, when I was running a homeless outreach center for Middlesex Interfaith Partners with the Homeless, we actually helped coordinate kind of a rotating soup kitchen and then helped crystallize it into one location, which is called Elijah's Promise a soup kitchen that still exists in New Brunswick. Our group actually, Middlesex Interfaith Partners with the Homeless, which was started by this terrific activist couple who are no longer a couple, but they're, they're both still good friends of mine, Janet Jones and Bob Nasdor. Um, uh, they were the first group in the country that that got federal land under a law that had, a federal law that had passed a few years earlier called the McKinney Homeless Assistance Act, which said that surplus federal lands should be made available for homeless advocacy groups to create housing. And our group was the first group that was successfully able to use it with the help of a homeless law group in, in Washington, D.C., to actually acquire land to build the housing program, which became Amon La Crossing. And, um, and, and I also, I also worked that then did some work for a few years as a writer uh, uh, doing grant writing and newsletter writing for the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty. Um, 
I, I helped start a national student activist group called Student Action Union with my then partner, who, who you knew, Christine Kelly, who sadly just passed away from uh, pancreatic cancer just a few weeks ago. Yeah, that was a shock to me. It was, but, wow. Yeah. But, um, but okay, that's great. And okay, I was going to say just, just currently. Then I'll just mention, then sure. I'll just mention a few others. Like, um, you know, I worked with, uh, with United for Peace and Justice when, when the most, re, uh, when the most, when the post 9-11 wars were starting to seem like they were going to get underway. Mm. And we had a, a chapter of it in Astoria, Queens, where I was, where I lived for um, maybe 10 years or so, called Historians for Peace and Justice. I worked with a free speech group called the Penn Freedom to Write Committee. Uh, I worked with an anti-poverty group in New Jersey called Solutions to End Poverty. Soon steps I worked with Occupy Wall Street and especially with the Occupy Wall Street Poetry Collective. And I also worked on a, a universal single-payer healthcare advocacy group called the Private Health Insurance Must Go Coalition. And the last group I'll name because um, the person it's named for was a friend and a great advisor to our Student Action Union it is the Abby Hoffman Activist Foundation, which I still do some work with. Ah, very cool. Yeah, I um, that's 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 a lot and wonderful. And we will link to at least some of those <laughs> in in our notes if not if we don't hit all of them. But um, people can certainly listen it back and uh, check out. You know, and, information and I have about a website. I, I have a website, and there's, there's different sections on the website: poems, prose, photos, and one uh, and a, one of them is a bio with a, with with those listed. Awesome. Yeah, so about poetry, how, how does that fit in with activism for you? Um, I know that sometimes I struggle with the sort of this social noise that, oh, you're just writing stuff that's not important, that's not as important as other types of work, you know, and, and I, in my heart and belief, disagree with that, but I sometimes get that, those thoughts in my head. So I was wondering what you, how you characterize that type of work. Yeah. You know, and and I know you must have, you know, thought about this yourself a lot for many years as a terrific singer-songwriter, but as a poet who writes political poems and has done activism, of course, this is a question I've thought of for, you know, decades. Um, you know, when I started writing poetry, I was a young poet, you know, I was one of Allen Ginsberg's favorite young poets. And, you know, I don't know where the years go, Robin, because now <laughs> I'm officially a senior. I just turned 65 recently. So, you know, there goes there go my young poetry days. And I just can't even imagine where, where those years went. <laughs> but uh, to me, you know, po to me, you know, I think of poetry and politics as a very complicated relationship. You know, I've written a lot about this, including, you know, both in poems and, you know, I wrote very specifically about this question in my book on Allen Ginsberg's Poetry and Politics. But to me, I sort of think of poetry and politics as having a very complicated relationship, sort of as, you know, as sometimes different spheres that are separated by a semi-permeable by a semi-permeable membrane, so that sometimes they can come together and help each other out, and sometimes 
they are are separate and apart in 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 those cases poets and artists who want to you know have an influence on political causes do separate do have separate activist lives you know working with activist groups and i've you know spent many nights in my life you know uh, going to, you know, participating in activist meetings and helping to run activist meetings, although we can get into this later too. I've had a difficult decade health-wise, so I haven't done as much in the last decade, and especially now during COVID. But, you know, but I spent a lot of years doing, you know, a lot of, you know, activism that was, you know, although sometimes I did poetry readings for those groups, it was also very separate from the poetry. But I, I think of poetry, you know, the way poetry can influence activism is it can do things like help to educate people about different issues and causes. It can help to inspire people to act. It can create scenes like, you know, in, in cafes or, you know, other other venues where young people have a chance to talk with each other about political issues that might not have other ways to talk with each other, especially in person. Of course, a lot of my work with, as a 65-year-old was done before there was social media. So now a lot of this, <laughs> and I have not had the health of energy these last 10 years to get on social media. So I'm not an expert on how to use social media for things. So I'm not going to talk too much about that. But you know, but sometimes artistic spaces, whether it's music, poetry, or even visual art galleries, can give young young people a chance to get together and discuss their concerns in interesting ways. And then in terms of the other way around, you know, politics and activist struggles can give inspiration to artists of all kinds. And I've certainly got a lot of my inspiration for a lot of my poems from my activism. You know, I I don't say that all poets, like I said, sometimes I think they can be separate and apart. But that sometimes, you know, you can write about issues like love and death that are going to be relevant no matter what terrific or terrible political systems we humans create in the future. But you know, and and so I, I'm, you know, there are some political artists who think that, you know, everything or one writes or draws or something should be political or should be thought of as political. I'm, I'm not, um, you know, I, I'm not somebody who, who feels that way. You know, I feel like you can, some, you know, like they can sometimes be separate, but, you know, you know, you, people can write poems that are, mostly about psychology that, you know, sometimes they can be also about politics, but sometimes not. But, you know, but a lot of times people's art comes out of their daily lives and mm -hmm. people write about what they've lived. And I've lived so much about politics that so many of my poems have to do with politics. Right. Absolutely. Well, I would love to hear another uh, poem or two. If you maybe, maybe, I know you said you had a poem you wanted to end with, which is a little bit longer, but if you have another one before that, and then maybe we could. Yeah. Do an let, me, let me read. Uh, let, let me read. I'll read two poems. Okay. Next. I'll read. Uh, first, I'm going to read an anti-war poem that I, that I wrote at the beginning of, of the last uh, Iraq war. 
And then I'm going to read a poem that I think you, you'll remember because I've read it in I read it in New Brunswick a bunch of times. But this is called "Can We Have Some Peace and Quiet, Please." The belligerent voices are yelling in the streets and on the radios, calling for the big bombs of peace to fall. The smart bombs, the bombs that have passed their college entrance exams. It's Orwellian the way everyone claims Orwell for their side. These days, everyone is fighting on behalf of Orwell and God. Years ago, Don Remsfeld and Saddam Hussein met in the corner and exchanged secret diplomatic handshakes. It is only after peaceful gestures like these that the missiles can fly. In the meantime, the time between the world mean as is and the world we mean to become. The endless rains are Yehuda Amakai's tears, watching men still violently beating their swords into plowshares and back into rifles and remote control fighter planes. On the corner of Spring Street and Broadway, a taxi, a taxi cab driver threw a baby lamb out the passenger side window. Everyone in a two block radius ran away screaming. In New York City, the yelling is so loud and the quiet so quiet that everyone I know just below the surface is scared out their wits knowing the violence these days that can follow an apparent peace. They are calling senators with empathetic American voices, urging earthly generation, urging earthly generosity and kindness which the corporate media and our elected leaders interpret as a vote for preemptive strikes. The next century's gods have not yet been born, and the last centuries are no longer able to show a child the simple magic trick of pulling its fingers away from a newly lit flame. And that's, can we have some peace and quiet, please? Wow. Thank you. And then the next one I'm going to read is called To the Vegetable Isle. I think you might remember this one. And, and you know, this is partly written because, you know, for, uh, for whatever reason, probably a long time ago, you know, the state where we live, New Jersey, is called the Garden State. So <laughs> this is. Well, where I where I live, it really is the Garden State still. So. Is, it, is it still? Oh, good. Yes. Where I live, there aren't too many. So. <laughs> <laughs> where I've lived, you know, a couple of places in New Jersey, there haven't been too many. But, you know, so this is more of a, a supermarket vegetable poem than a garden vegetable poem. But this is called To the Vegetable Isle. Under refrigerated water spray, all looks healthy. Romaine, red and green, Boston bib, watercress. How choose a lettuce? How to know which of you has natural soil's nutrients intact? Hey, arugula, why haven't I seen you here before? Who let, these, who let those prepackaged sicklies in the door? There's plenty broccoli bunches, no ketchup. At least the Reagan Bush era is over. Which squash has more vitamin A, spaghetti or butternut? Would one of you please raise your label? Speak up. Which of you has been microwaved? Who here likes creamy Italian? Who's not afraid of the juicer's steel blades? Brussels sprouts and red cabbage settle your price wars peacefully. 
Chestnuts, are you a vegetable now? Ah, tofu. You are the cure for famine and carnivorism. No wonder U.S. wants your French soybean subsidies cut. How juicy these ripe Jersey tomatoes, lulling me for an illusory moment. This really could be a garden state. Wait a minute now. Why isn't this aisle as well lit as the candy bar section? As the candy bar section? Why a Mars bar cheaper than a bag of spinach? Doesn't it cost more to grow a candy bar? When I was a six-year-old child, I remember watching a professional wrestler described as having a cauliflower ear. Cauliflower, it was 20 years before I could look at you again. Actually, for a long time in childhood, I refused to eat vegetables. It was a way of rebelling, I think. Later, I substituted alcohol for not eating vegetables. Now I welcome you, radical and mostly sober, escarole and chicory, now kale, now garlic, now red peppers and parsley. Peas and green beans, who will protect you from being canned and frozen to death? Without values of internationalism and democratic accountability in all public institutions, who will safeguard the diversity? Who protect us from irradiation and pesticide? Who will assure the right to organize? Who sets transnational standards of minimum wage, eco-health, and safe working conditions? Who makes sure hyper-technology doesn't take over? After a right-wing tide, who will remineralize your soil? Who will assure access to your aisle and to affordable housing for all? Who will apologize for bumping my cart into shoppers while writing this poem? Sleep tight. Don't let the bacteria bite. Feed the struggle for another night. Yay. <laughs> Thank you. It was hard not to giggle at some of those lines. It was very good. Thank you. Well, you know, I learned from... Uh, some of my favorite poet teachers, you know, like Allen Ginsberg and some others, that sometimes when you, when you want the politics to go down, it helps to include some humor with it. Yes, absolutely. You know, yeah. in, my, in my book on, you, you, uh, some of your listeners might enjoy this. And I have it uh, in my book on Allen Ginsberg's poetry and politics. I have one section with about eight or nine sort of poetic strategies on how Ginsburg and other poets have made uh, poetry about political issues, uh, memorable poetry and not flat poetry that just, you know, says things, but uh, poetry that's interesting as poetry as well as being politically relevant or insightful. And actually, have the section of that book on my website in the prose section, you know, ways to to make memorable political poetry. Awesome. I will definitely check it out for sure. Um, so we should end, actually. I just want to say, if, if you have any parting thoughts and maybe a last poem to share with us. And uh, this has been really, really great. Well, thank you, Rob. It's been, it's been great talking with you. Um, you know, the last thing I would just say is, is when it comes to freedoms, again, you know, uh, I, I think we also need to think you know, about both individual freedoms and social freedoms. And what we want to work for is both, you know, um, 
we, we want to work for a society where where everyone is free you know so that means you know no individual or group's freedom you know prevents other people from having freedoms so um i've i've been i've always been what i call depending on the context i'm in either a democratic leftist or a democratic socialist and you know i i come out of those traditions which partly influenced by theorists like Rosa Luxemburg, who's one of my favorites, and, and who has a great, Rosa Luxemburg has a great quote. You know, she, she wrote a terrific little book that I would really recommend people reading on the Russian Revolution, in which she was, um, you know, praising Russia moving beyond the czar, but criticizing Russia for, you know, for ending you know, for, for for not instituting more democratic uh, processes in voting and free speech. And she has this great quote that I want to say about freedom because, you know, it's one of the things I was thinking of reading, but I think it's from a poem that's too long. So before I read my last thing, I'm just going to give this Rosa Luxemburg quote where she says that a new, si- a new society could never be built by decree, and she wrote, and this is the quote, freedom is always and exclusively freedom for the one who thinks differently. And, and she wrote that without general elections, without unrestricted freedom of press and assembly, without a free struggle of opinion, life dies out in every public institution. So that, that's Rosa Luxemburg on freedom, and I just thought I'd include that quote in this talk because I admire her work so much. But in your introduction, I think you mentioned this, that uh, my late mother, who who actually lived to her early 90s, um, and a very interesting adult life, was um, was a Holocaust survivor. She was, uh, she um, came from a family of 10 in Hungary and was taken in 19... 19- 44 to um, on the cattle cars to Auschwitz, where mo- mo- where her two parents and five of her seven siblings were killed in the gas chambers of Auschwitz. And uh, in most of my childhood, I knew that you know she had been through the Holocaust, and I knew some general generalities about it. But you know, she was really. It wasn't like today where a lot of times people who have post-traumatic stress are told to work through it, you know. Her generation was taught to try not to think about it. So it wasn't until really the mid-90s where she was willing to start talking about it. And so in the mid-90s, I did an interview with her about her Holocaust experiences. And I wrote a long poem called Liberation Recalled, which is actually going to be the title of a book of new and selected poems that I'm currently having translated into Italian and that's going to be published in Florence, hopefully later this year, early next, and then I currently have out with it under consideration with a few U.S. publishers. But it's a long poem, and every other section is transcribed from the interview that I did with my mother about her Holocaust experiences, and then the sections in between are my own poems in different styles on different themes 
um, trying to sort of through the juxtaposition to explore questions about um, intergenerational and historical legacy. So I'm going to read two sections. I'm going to end with two sections from Liberation Recalled. The first one from the interview with my mother, then the second one, you know, one of my own short poems. And partly I'm, I'm going to read this particular section because we're doing this interview just a few days before Martin Luther King's birthday, which I mentioned in, in that section. So these are two sections from Liberation Recalled, and the entire poem is currently in a book, if anybody wants to get it, called Unlocking the Exits, which is published by Coffeehouse Press. And it's actually also on my website that people can download for free. So this is uh, the Section 10 from Liberation Recalled. And again, two people have to picture two voices, me interviewing my mom, my late mom. Could you tell who were the SS and who were Hungarians? Sure. The SS men were in uniforms. They had these uh, swastikas on their clothes. And the Hungarians were not the soldiers or police, just regular people. But the Hungarian police were, were not resisting, they were helping. They were cooperating, cooperating. They were helping the Germans to get us faster out. So then your whole family was put on one train car? Yes, we were all together in one wagon, in one train, but not just one family. They pushed us all in there. But one day they said, okay, now we're gonna take you all. And it was before Passover. My poor mother got together the Passover dishes for taking into the ghetto because Passover's coming. That was like April. Then they didn't let us have dishes. They let, they let us have whatever clothes we had to put everything on. So we took nightgowns, dresses. They didn't let us have any packages, just like one suitcase. And we took that suitcase with us and we went. And that train stopped in Auschwitz. Everything was lighted up, but we didn't see any people around, just wires. The whole thing was wired around and we saw these chimneys. That was the crematorium and the light was on. We didn't know what the hell was going on. And when we came off the trains, the DSS men were there. They put the men and the boys on one side and the women and children, the girls on another side. And my mother had three little girls, the babies. So I went there to help her pick up the little girl, helping with my sister. The SS men took away my sister, dropped her to my mother and they took my other two sisters and myself in one spot because we were older so we can go to work. And the other kids went on the one side and they went all right away in the crematorium. This is section 25. In the midst of early American modernism, 35,000 workers were killed and over 700,000 injured in 1914's industrial accidents. That year, more than 100 socialists elected local office by pure products of Oklahoma. The Brooklyn Eagle fired Helen Keller after she self-declared socialist, pointing out her physical limitations as if deafness and blindness entered her life as bodily defense against ideological transformation. 
1919, Seattle workers sustained a citywide strike nonviolently, about which Anise wrote in Labor's paper, the businessmen don't understand that sort of weapon. It is your smile that is upsetting their reliance on artillery, brother. Not many read Anise's poems anymore, and Seattle now renowned for grunge rock and coffee shops. In 1924, KKK Knights of Abhorrent Cloth masked America with over 4.5 million white hoods. In 1932, the Bonus Army came to D.C. imploring early Depression-era payment of World War I bonuses already pledged. 20,000 vets were smacked back by MacArthur, Eisenhower, and Patton, the best military minds the U.S. could muster against its own. Opposing the most elegant thuggery big business could buy, 1.5 million U.S. unionists nonetheless went on strike in 1934. Since then, war, since then wars have been fought, wars have been stopped. Martin Luther King's birthday declared a holiday his radical democratic legacy quietly ignored. Developing world materials and misery prop up the Western wardrobe, yet laughter and music become more internationalized than ever. Despair, desire, sorrow, hope, stenotopic, uretopic, old stories witnessed in new ways. What is history, if not a bit, of wishful thinking. Thank you so much, Elliot. I'm Thank you, Robin. So glad that you're here. Thank you, Robin. I'm glad that you're here. <laughs> So, yeah, we just heard a great conversation with Elliot Katz, and he, uh, after the fact, wanted me to mention that he didn't have time to discuss the freedom to vote or the freedom of high school teachers to teach uncensored history and literature and the freedom of choice when it comes to abortion rights. And, you know, he's been watching these issues play out in court decisions and state legislatures and just wanted to acknowledge their importance, even though there really wasn't time in that conversation to to address it so you know it's there's so much to talk about and you just don't get to everything but he just wanted to make that clear you got questions we got answers and today's question is from one of my facebook friends greg schroeder and he asks if there were no dietary consequences what one food would you eat for the rest of your life i will let you go first robin <laughs> <laughs> one food I mean, there are things that I like that are sweet, but it's not like it's not like I have a favorite thing that I would really and honestly want to eat all the time constantly, but like I it must be something maybe something sweet and coconut related, but I can't even think of <laughs> what exactly that would be. I don't know. What is your answer? Maybe I'll get uh, My answer is chocolate ice cream. <laughs> okay. You know, I uh, I actually eat that almost every day anyway, but just like a little bit. But if there were no dietary consequences, it would probably be, you know, chocolate ice cream, chocolate sauce, lots of whipped cream. 
whipped cream. You is know, a, good one. a yeah. lot of you know, because it's like the cholesterol in that is kind of you know, eh, maybe I shouldn't eat so much of that kind of thing. And you, 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 anything to excess is bad. But yeah, that would probably be it. If there were no consequences, if I wouldn't gain weight and it wouldn't fuck up my cholesterol, I would be snarfing those down with every meal. So okay. Chocolate ice cream. Actually, my sort of analogous, like, desserty thing, it's, it's uh, crystallized ginger. Mm. Like, I will eat as much of it as I buy, so I have to, like, <laughs> decide. <laughs> but um, but I love crystallized ginger, and I also love pasta, especially with, like, greens in it. So, like, spinach pasta or mm. broccoli rob or something like that. So, yeah, I could maybe eat pasta every day if nothing else, you know, if no other issues. That might be one. Hmm. But I don't, honestly, that's, none of these things are really, it's not sticking with me as like, I would absolutely want to do that every day. But yeah, but I could, you know, I definitely could overindulge in things that I like a lot. And there's probably varied a bunch of things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, thanks for the question, Greg. Yeah. (laughs) That's interesting. So what do we got coming up for the next show? For the next show, we have a conversation with Stephanie Sellers, who has a film out called Lust <laughs> Life Love. Ah. I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with, with you. And let's see, and what else and is we've going got on? A, oh, the we have a Geekscape. I'm way I'm excited about this. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Futurama episode, A Taste of Freedom. And I'm going to watch the episode to remind yes, myself of it beforehand. Need- so that will be, that'll <laughs> it's be fun. It's on Netflix. It's okay. on Netflix. So. Yeah. It's- and the, one, the main reason I'm doing that is because when Robin announced, suggested the the theme of freedom for this, this season, the song from that is instantly played in my head and, and I need to share it with everyone. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> This is going to be good. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that. And I hope you have enjoyed this show. And I'm Robin Renee. And you can find me on Facebook at Robin Renee Fan, on Instagram at Robin Renee Music, and on Twitter at Spirit Rock Sexy. And if you are on Discord, you can find me as Andrew Genus. And I'm Wendy Sheridan. And you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Wendy Cards, on Twitter at Wendy Designs. And on Etsy at Wendy Cards with a Z. And on Discord, I am Voxwoman with a V. Voxwoman with a V. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, you can always reach out to us on social media at Leftscape. So send us your questions and we might answer them on an upcoming show. So until next time, be well, stay safe, and keep, keep left. left. You've been listening to the Leftscape Podcast. Sound engineering by Wendy Sheridan. Show notes by Robin Renee. Fake sponsor messages by Ariel Sheridan. Web hosting by InMotion. Remote recording by Squadcast. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Leftscape. Become a patron of our show for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash Leftscape. Thanks for listening. <laughs>